Good morning. Glad to see you all here this morning. I asked uh, Terry Wynn, who has been around here almost the entire history of North River's 30 years, and she would share some of her faith story this morning. So uh, I just have a couple of questions for Terry that she knows are coming. Uh, the first is, how did you come to faith? And, and tell us a little bit about that process for you. Well, I was not, is this on? Well, I was not raised in a Christian home and was sent away to boarding school at a very young age. When I was 12, I was school, at school in Tucson, and we looked for any excuse to get off campus. So one, day, one of the day students' moms offered to take a group of us to a Billy Graham revival. A group of us jumped at the chance to go. Now, I had no idea who Billy Graham was, and I thought I was going to a rock concert. <laughs> but to my surprise, Billy Graham did what Billy Graham did best, and I accepted Jesus that night. I knew for certain that Jesus died for my sins and that I was now saved, but I had no idea what that meant. I had no Christians in my life, so it was years and a few very key people who were willing to invest in me before I actually learned that God had a plan for my life and a way of communicating with me, and I was introduced to the concept of actually reading and studying the Bible and learning how God, God wanted me to live my life. What brought you to North River? When did that happen? You said you... you uh discovered Jesus at the age of 12 at a Billy Graham rally, and then years later you end up here. Many, many years. Um, <laughs> as I grew in my faith, I met and married my first husband, and we attended a local denominational church. And through a series of events, it became abundantly clear that it was time to move on. And we were led to check out North River. At the time, my daughter Carly was born in November of 1989, and we started attending North River when she was two weeks old. So this December, it will be 30 years since I've been coming to North River. And um, even the three years I lived in New Jersey, I considered North River my home church. So how about if you answer the question that Christy just described that other people are going to be uh, answering on film. What does North River mean to you? What does North River mean in your life? Well, when I accepted Jesus at 12, I knew in my soul that I had been adopted into God's family, but I had no reference for what that really meant until I came to North River. And through the years, this church has become an earthly manifestation of what God's, church, God's family means to me. It has given me a sense of belonging and acceptance. And just like a family, there are those that I'm really close to, those that I barely know, and some I have yet to meet. And just like in a family, I have been supported, stretched, corrected, appreciated, and understood. Don't get me wrong, this is an earthly family, so there have been times that I felt very unsupported, unappreciated, and misunderstood. But as in a true family, it was generally misunderstandings and human perspectives that caused those things to happen. And I'm happy to say that those times have been few and far between. I've made some really poor choices through the years and was given great counsel. I was held accountable and I was still loved. I was supported through a divorce and happily I got to meet my second husband on a North River mission trip. I've had the privilege of raising two amazing kids with the help and support of North River. Carly and her husband have gone into college campus ministry and I'm thrilled that North River has continued to support them and their family in the CCO ministry. And my son Christian has grown into a godly man that I think we can all be proud to call him family. By showing up and getting involved here, I can honestly say that there's not a part of my life that has not been touched by North River. 
Are there lessons you've learned? Part of what I'm going to talk about today are lessons over the past 30 years, but what lessons have you learned from your time here? I've learned many lessons over the years, but the biggest one is that we are the church. I think it was much easier to embrace that 30 years ago because there really were only 50 of us at the time. Um, and if the church needed something, we needed to do it. My friends and I had babies, so we started the nursery. And as the kids got older, we passed that on to new moms, and we started the toddler room, and so on and so on and so on. And um, when the church needed repairs and when we were expanding, we all showed up to work. There are countless examples of members going to the leaders of the church to say, well, you know, we need this, or we really should have that. You know, you all can fill in the blanks. We all have great ideas. Um, and if it was something that everyone felt was a good idea, the reply was always, great, you go do it. <laughs> well, we all learned that there, that there was not a church that was going to provide it for us, and that um, we were the ones that were going to have to provide it for us. So it became clear, and what became clear as time passed was that it was while in doing it, I bonded with people I was doing it with. I built my closest friendships and relationships with people here that I have volunteered with, served with, I was served by, learned with and learned from, and worshiped with. I really laugh when people ask me what I've been involved with at North River, and I have to start like a day-long list. It kind of boggles my mind of all the things I've done here. But some of those things were very successful, and I'm happy to say are still carried on today. Some were very successful for a time, and some were total failures. Some of the things I did, I did really well. Some things I really faked it really well. And some things I was just clearly not cut out for. But the really cool part was the grace that's been given to me over the years as I got to figure out where I fit and where I didn't fit. Sunday mornings are great, don't get me wrong, but I really became a part of this family the rest of the week. Nice. nice. Thank you, Terry. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. You give Terry a hand. We're going to hear some stories this week and next week as we uh, take a couple of weeks to, to look back and to think about how we're moving forward together as a church. I have two passages that I'd like to read uh, here. I'm going to ask you to read the second one with me. Let me read the first one. It's from Acts chapter 2, and then I'm going to ask you to read with me from Hebrews chapter 1. Acts 2, 42 to 47 describes the early church this way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's read this together. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, 
and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Let's pray for a moment. God, thank you for being a Lord who enters into history. We've just read these words that remind us that you spoke in various ways, prophets and kings and priests in times past. But you have spoken most clearly as you broke into history by sending your son, Jesus. Thank you that we have confidence that Jesus is the exact representation of who you are that all of the glory and all of the fullness of the Godhead, of the three-in-one, of the triune God, is seen in Jesus. And so as we encounter Jesus, as we meet him in the pages of Scripture, as we meet in the midst of worship, as we meet him in the midst of our prayers, that you continue to convey to us that you are real, and that as we see your Son we come to know you, and we see you in all the fullness. Help us as we continue to lead people toward Jesus and to embrace Jesus, and as we try to grow in our faith in Jesus, help us to understand deeply and to become people of the Word, people who aren't rooted only in experiences, the memory of which can fade or be misinterpreted, but we are also students of the Word, and therefore we are anchored to the historic message first proclaimed by the apostles. Guide us today as we look into your word and as we begin to celebrate together over this next week, as we celebrate your faithfulness to us for 30 years. We're in awe of that, God. And I ask that during the coming days that you will walk with each and every one of us as we have prayed so many times. Grant us the wisdom that we need for the decisions that are coming this week. Grant us the patience, the compassion, the mercy, the gentleness, the kindness to represent you to a world that badly needs to see Jesus. Put people in our pathway to whom we can tell our stories and to whom we can explain how you are relevant in our lives Monday through Saturday, week after week, month after month, year after year. Put people in our pathways who will be curious about our stories and who will, who will want to know the source of the peace and the hope that we have within us. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All these names have been changed, but the stories are true. Daryl's family was so involved in church, he used to say that he grew up in the church. Sunday morning, Sunday evening service, prayer meeting in the midweek, high school youth group. His faith was growing in those years yet it was comfortable and untested. So when he skipped college for the business world, he never dreamed he might be a prime target for a cult group. Already disillusioned by the silent faith of the adult Christians he knew and frustrated by the ethical lapses in the marketplace, he was impressed by the boldness and the zeal of a co-worker who led a lunchtime Bible study. Before a month had passed, this new group began to control all his free time. They had convinced him that his parents were not really Christians because their movement alone laid sole claim to the faith of the apostles. 
Sure, their teaching was dogmatic and authoritarian, but who could argue against such zeal and faith and passion in action? And the leader of the group was so charismatic and articulate. Only a life-threatening illness brought Darrell around as he daily witnessed his parents' unconditional love and consistent prayer life. Later, he wondered how he had ever come to doubt their quiet, consistent faith so easily compared against something that was far more flashy and controlling. John felt threatened when his wife started going to church after 10 years of marriage. She tagged along with their best friends from their cul-de-sac. He told her that he would support her if this made her happy, but inside he resented her for it and he wanted no part of it. He himself had rejected the church and the faith of his youth as boring and irrelevant. But as boring as, and, and as irrelevant as it was, he decided that he wouldn't be caught dead going to any other church. After all, wasn't the church of his youth still called the One Holy Universal Church? Rachel's mind kept coming back to two recurring thoughts. People just weren't supposed to enjoy church this much. And she was angry, and she wanted everybody else to be angry when she showed up at church. She was angry that her church hadn't taught her the Bible in her youthful years, angry that she had lived this long without really knowing that Easter was about God's son dying in her place, her place, and being raised again to defeat the power of death and the power of fear and everything else that held her back. I bring these stories to you this morning for a handful of reasons. First, because they are real. And they are stories of people who have filled this room at one time or another. Second, because most of us at one time or another will be looking for a new church. And there are questions we need to ask when you get moved away because a job takes you somewhere else or where retirement moves you to a completely different part of the country. You need to know, how do you find a church that's authentic and real and healthy and alive? The third reason is because we live in a time when students of the present refer to us as a post-truth culture, where some of the ways that we talked about faith in the past no longer seem to work in discussions in the present in this culture. This morning is a special day for us. This marks the final Sunday of 30 years of ministry together here at North River Church. Next Sunday, we will celebrate the anniversary of North River's very first worship service, and we begin a new year together. So for these two Sundays, we're going to be looking back and moving forward and talking about those ideas. So I want to share with you some lessons we have learned so far in this journey together. And the first of these lessons stems directly from a statement which describes how the early church in Jerusalem was devoted to the apostles' teaching. So let me ask this question, what is the apostles' teaching or what is apostolic teaching? I hope that I answer that a bit through this message, but here's the central idea that I want to get across. Great faith today relies on the time-tested principles we see in the very first Christians. There are some things that are new about understanding our culture and how to be effective, but most of Christian faith has never changed in any way, shape, or form since the first church in Jerusalem. It is the same faith that still works today, that is still powerful and effective today. So our, our message this morning is titled, Time Tested. 
What is time-tested? Well, first, uh, ancient principles have been time-tested. Verse 42 of Acts chapter 2 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Luke, the medical doctor and historian who was part of the Apostle Paul's traveling team, wrote this very first description of the original church, the first church that met in the city of Jerusalem. And he starts off by telling us that they devoted themselves. Some of us have talked about this in the past. What does it mean to be devoted? If you look it up in the dictionary, it says that that word devoted means to be unswervingly loyal or to have a fidelity to a person or a cause. So therefore, this kind of loyalty is an unswerving loyalty or fidelity to four things that are described here in Acts 2.42. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship of the local church, to breaking of bread together, which gets interpreted in two different ways in this same passage, and to prayer. And those four things are very simple, but they are very powerful. Within a decade or two from the time when Luke wrote these words, all except John of the original disciples and apostles of Jesus would be gone. And the faith would have to carry on without them. What grew the church and what kept it on track all of those years since? What kept it on track theologically was this same devotion which was caught and taught from generation to generation. And oh, how the early church grew. Prior to Pentecost, there were 120 followers of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem who were there together waiting for the next instructions after he had ascended back into the heavens. On that day, the Holy Spirit came upon them with power and sent them into the streets of Jerusalem with the message of the crucified and risen Jesus. So many people responded to that message that this number increased from 120 to 3,120 in one day. And those were just the ones who were baptized on that day. After a series of persecutions and deliberate church planting movements which scattered them, the church continued to grow to more than 5,000. And then over the next 300 years, it became the dominant faith of Europe, spreading as well into Asia and Africa. And then the gospel continued to spread around the world. And this is just the story of the Acts of the Apostles. This means that the apostolic pattern of these four primary elements is time-tested. When we are committed to the teaching of the apostles and we don't change the message, when we are committed to the local fellowship of the church, when we are committed to breaking bread together and to praying together, God moves in surprising and powerful ways. Thirty years ago, we started with a dream that if we anchored our approach on those four principles, that we believed that God would bless something. We weren't sure that we would necessarily survive. There are a lot of times when North River operated from week to week or month to month and, and survival mode was very, very prominent. Truth is, we didn't know who was gonna show up the very first day that we met. We had 10 that were in a steering committee and we, didn't, we deliberately did not invite people from the church that I was leaving at the time because we didn't wanna take them with us. We wanted them to stay where they were. And we didn't want to hurt that church. And it was amazing when 75 people showed up the first day. It was even more amazing when 50 came back the second week. <laughs> they call that a Scottish revival. It's a little bit stingy and, and tight on the numbers. What is apostolic teaching? Hebrews chapter 1 provides 
a very clear summary in these four verses that we read together. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But, here's the key distinction, (coughs) in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the gospel in four short verses. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 summarizes the teaching of the the apostles. Verse 1 recognizes that God had spoken in many different ways in the prior eras. The writer here is imagining how God spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament era. Sometimes he spoke through some of the very faithful kings. Sometimes he he spoke to people in ways that they didn't even imagine that he could speak, like through a donkey. But God was speaking all the way along. The rest of this paragraph centers on his primary communication, his greatest communication, which was through Jesus. And this paragraph centers on Jesus as the heir of all things, the exact representation of God's being, and as the Redeemer who so thoroughly finished his work that when he was finished, he sat down. And he sat down with authority at the right hand of the Father. These words are meant to describe for us an encapsulated view of the entire life and ministry of Jesus. And it makes the point that his work was fully accomplished. His work of redemption was fully accomplished. And having done all that he needed to do to secure grace for us and for for potentially the entire world, he stopped. And he sat down at the right hand of, of God the Father, where he still is today interceding for us. These early Christians traveled the world letting people know that there was no one like the Jesus who changed their lives. People in most of those cultures did not have the Bible. They certainly didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have a track record of decades and decades of prior witness of Christians, but they talked about what Jesus had done and how Jesus had changed their lives, and that was enough. And the Holy Spirit used that again and again and again. Here's the point. If we as North River wish to reach our full potential, We must understand and cling to the same kind of devotion and be willing to tell our stories because what's relevant to your friends and neighbors is the change that God has brought in your life. We also see in these words time-tested truths and new applications. In Colossians chapter 4, a couple of weeks ago, I read these words where Paul says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. These words are from the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Colossians. And the early church leaders brought the gospel to new places and to skeptical cultures, which is why Paul was praying for open doors. So here we see part of the pattern, the same message, but backed up by prayer. And a partnership began to emerge. Some people were given speaking gifts. Some people uh, had that boldness where they could go into new cultures by themselves. But 
without the prayers of the people, they were blocked and they were stopped and their message was ineffective. And so there's this huge partnership that takes a whole church to evangelize even one person because the power is in the prayer of the people. And even Paul needed the church to pray for him, that his message would be clear and that the doors would be open. The rest of the New Testament story and of the past 2,000 years is primarily about new applications of these same time-tested truths. Oh, there are more of them. We just summarize what's in the gospel. Where do we see those new applications? Well, in Acts 17, we read about Paul going to the city of Athens. He saw so many statues to various gods who were worshipped there. And then he noticed one statue that was dedicated to an unknown god. In other words, they'd created this one statue just in case they'd missed one of the, the polytheistic gods that they worshipped. And so Paul started there. He began to tell the people of Athens who had, who had great pride in regard to their philosophical debates and their great wisdom about the God who created the world, who is not subject to the world, yet who, will, who entered the world through his Son and will judge the world with justice through the one that he has sent and who has been risen from the dead. And he told them about Jesus. And there are a number of occasions that we see in the New Testament record that are similar to this and that live out in church history right on up to our day as people take the same message and try to think through how it applies to culture as it changes. So on the heels of this, I'd like to share with you four lessons that I think we have learned so far. Here's the first one. Those time-tested principles still hold true. They are still true. Methods and strategies change, but the ancient principles of the gospel still bear fruit. Perhaps you have read that the Christian church is in decline. And there are a number of studies that claim this today. Much of this information has come in the last decade with research on what has been called the rise of the nuns, not N-U-N-S, nuns that wear habits and all that, but N-O-N-E-S, meaning they check the box that says none of the above. I don't buy into Christianity or into any denomination or any other faith. I'm a nun. And we've seen this amazing thing happen over the last decade where for years and years and years, those who consider themselves to be atheists and agnostics were a small percentage of our society, about 4 to 6 percent. But within the past 10 years, they say that the, the rise of nuns has gone somewhere up to about 14% of our culture, where people just say, I don't buy any of it, I want nothing to do with any of it. Syndicated columnist Terry Mattingly and a number of veteran religion beat reporters have done a great job of sifting through these reports. Here's what they tell us. Historically, the United States religious culture used to fall into three groups. I'm going to label them this way, serious Christians, moderate or, ca or casual Christians, and then skeptics, agnostics, and atheists. So serious Christians are those who, who continue to go to church on a regular basis and on a day-to-day -day basis try to live out their faith. Moderate or casual Christians were those who formed the religious middle. They went to church once in a while, Christmas and Easter, maybe some other occasions. Uh, it was a part of their culture, but they weren't really pursuing it. And skeptics, agnostics, and atheists were those who, for the most part, rejected Christian thinking. What we've seen is that the rise of the nuns, the no-faith people, has largely come from a near collapse of the middle. Serious Christians who continue to try to live out their faith still make up somewhere between 20 to 25% of our population in the United States. 
The nuns now make up somewhere between 10 to 14% of our culture, if the studies are accurate. And they largely come from what was once the religious middle, although some come from even churches like ours where the children do not carry on the faith of the parents. And churches which have represented that religious middle for a long time are struggling mightily and shrinking rapidly. But the same people who study these statistics find that Christian churches that hold fast to the apostolic message are the ones that are growing and the ones that people are flocking to in increasing number because in this age of, uh, of people thinking that they're beyond truth, people are seeking the historic truth in new ways too. The time-tested principles still hold true. Here's our second thing we've learned so far, second lesson. We have seen the impact of visionary giving. Interesting verses here in Acts 2, verse 44 says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. The pattern of sacrificial and visionary giving is a mark of apostolic faith, and we see it exhibited in the very first church. From the beginning, Christians have had a justice-oriented, activistic bent. One of the great things about many younger Christians today is that they pride themselves in being known as the justice generation or in having a justice orientation. If you look back into your experience long enough, what you will see is that every generation contributes some measure of correction to the previous generation. So today's generation is calling us back to the precedent set by earlier generations, even that we see in the very first church. We must not give up on the realization that the same gospel that brings us redemption from sin also leads, so, leads us to redeem some of the broken corners and systems of this world today. It is why we care. It is why we describe ourselves as being sent into the world. It is why we have a go team that organizes stuff like what happened after last Sunday's service, trying to let you know about the groups that we are involved with and that we are supporting so that all of us can have some attachment to the international aspect, the, the outreach side of our ministry. We're meant to grow and to go at the same time. Every act of giving is visionary. It was for the original church. So these early Christians sacrificed because they saw the impact of meeting local needs. They sacrificed to send pastors and missionaries and evangelists into other cultures. And they sacrificed to further the work of the local church. They gave because they embraced a vision of what the church could do when it is fully resourced and when its people are fully equipped to serve and to lead and to go. I remember when North River began 30 years ago. There was no group that was bankrolling us. We were on our own. The 10 of us who were part of that planning team, we, we got together during the week before the very first service and we actually had a hat and we wrote down some numbers of what we were willing to give every month and we threw that on the hat. That was our first budget. <laughs> that budget meant there was no salary for the pastor. I went back and got a job and I painted houses. And so I, I did that job during the day and then every night I would do church work. And then after several months, they said, well, we can take you on partially. And, and so I began to be a part-time pastor in terms of employment. And it took a year for us to get to the point where uh, 
we, we could have me on, on a salary and I could give full time to all of this. Gradually, the church grew and we moved to a larger space. We added more rental space. Eventually, we acquired land and we built this facility and some of you were the people who sacrificed several different times for each step of what I described in a sentence. Believing that same visionary impact can be achieved again today. People like you have given to further the vision of what one church can do. And some of you have been around here for the entire run and you've watched with amazement how God has answered prayers. That kind of visionary giving is a mark of historic faith. It's not something we have to invent. It's not something we have to conjure up. It's right there in the story. And I want to say thank you. Thank you for continuing to follow that pattern for so many years. Thank you even so many times when we've said, you don't have to give if somebody invited you here and we've never coerced anybody. Thank you for voluntarily getting on board, embracing the vision and saying, I want to be a part of making this happen. Here's the third discovery. Our world longs for and hungers for real fellowship. Terry describes some of that impact on her life where the church became her larger extended family through all kinds of ups and downs. Here's what Acts 2 says about it. They devoted themselves, among other things, to the fellowship. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Among other things, those verses are describing an uncommon bond that existed among the very first church. Fellowship is not the, uh, is, is not, uh, a church is not the only place where fellowship exists. We can find some aspect of it in other places. Uh, a measure of fellowship can be found on the athletic fields. Uh, a measure of fellowship can be found in clubs and neighborhood groups. But there is nothing like the real deep growing fellowship of a church and of Christian fellowship when it is cultivated. Real Christian fellowship leads to lifelong bonds. Real Christian fellowship doesn't evaporate when times get tough. Real Christian fellowship is something that is handed off from generation to generation. And what we see today when fellowship operates at its best has been handed off and modeled to us by generations that came before us. And Christian fellowship keeps getting stronger. Every time we worship together, it grows deeper because we have a shared love for the Lord. Every time we learn together, it grows deeper because we are fueled by the power of the Word of God. Every time we serve together, it grows more deeply because our experiences begin to be, become formed as we are involved in mission together. And every time we share each other's sufferings, that fellowship grows deeper because we realize that when you are helped and you are comforted by the power of God and by His Spirit, He equips you to stand beside the next person who goes, goes through the same thing. And therefore, there's never a hurt that is wasted. It is all used by God and even strengthens others. And here's the fourth lesson I think we've learned so far. There is no substitute for worship and prayer. There's no substitute for these things. So verse 46 and verse 47 end this paragraph. It says, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Worship and prayer reorient us to focus on the Lord himself. Yes, there is a skill that comes in leading worship. And we have some tremendous worship leaders around here, including some of our teams, as we saw this morning. 
But here's the downside to our culture right now of worship. This also can lead to what some have called the worship wars. Worship wars are where we fight over the style of worship songs or where we react to a worship culture, culture that makes too much of the worship leaders or the worship experience so that we start to judge worship by how we felt. We say, that was great worship today. When what God really cares about is who we were worshiping today and whether the worship, whether we thought it was great or mediocre or even poor, took us to Jesus, reminded us of the power of redemption, of the story of the gospel, of those times when our hearts were changed, took us to a place where we made a connection with God and communed with God. It doesn't matter the style as long as worship takes us there and we connect. Does that make sense to you? So the goal of leading worship well always should be on helping people focus on the experience, uh, focus on and experience the goodness of God, the truth of who he is. The best of the hymns will last for a long time because of their lyrical truth and their musical integrity. Many of the hymns will die because they were lousy songs to begin with. And you know that if you grew up in church. I'm not going to go into mimicking the songs. I could do it. Those of you who know me well know I could do it. The best of the current worship music will live on for generations for the same reason. Because of its lyrical truth and because of tunes and melodies that capture the heart and stay in the mind. The worst of them that are either shallow theologically or badly written tunes will soon be forgotten. There's no difference it fits both genres. And prayer, like worship, has the power to change our hearts and our mindsets. Often, God resets and renews our hearts during these times. Some of my closest friends are people who I have battled over ideas and decisions. And then we go into prayer, and it's fascinating to the way that a prayer time absolutely changes the conversation. And we come back to finish the conversation, to make the decision, and it's a completely different conversation. Prayer has this amazing way of connecting us with what God wants to do, because in the act of prayer, no matter how good you feel you're at it or how terrible you feel that you are at prayer, it connects us with this almighty God who wants us to communicate with him, and it reminds us that he is great and we are small, and he is the great problem solver. And when we are left to ourselves and our own decisions, not backed up by prayer, we are all capable of making tremendous mistakes. And there's no substitute for prayer. Paul acknowledged that. That's why he asked the church to pray for him and to pray for open doors. And there's no substitute for worship. One often flows from the other and flows into the other. Done well, they complement each other. And this is where we often meet God, hear from God, and find that our perspectives are changed by God. I would like to encourage you, whether you feel that you are a worshiper or not, to enter into it, make a really bad noise with a joyful heart, because God is in that. 
And I would like to encourage those of you who feel like you've never really figured out prayer to dive in anyway. Because as you speak to God, God speaks to you. God meets you there. And prayer and worship are more about trying than they are about excellence. Because God wants you. And God loves you. And as we sang this morning, he will climb up any mountain, he will kick down any door to find you, and that's the God that we present to people. Here's what I'm trying to communicate. Great faith today is not much different from great faith of 2,000 years ago. Great faith today relies on the same time-tested principles we see in the very first Christians. It's not rocket science, friends. It's ancient, but lived out in a changing culture. And that's the challenge that you and I have. I wonder if you would finish this off with me. On the, on the back page of your notes, I, I put a comment that I took from Rick Kirchhoff. He gave this, he's a, a Methodist pastor, and in the year 2000, he spoke at the uh, annual conference of the United Methodist Church in Memphis. And uh, this is what he said. I'm going to read the first sentence, and then I want you to read the rest with me. When God sends forth the Spirit, amazing things happen. Here we go. Barriers are broken. Communities are formed. Opposites are reconciled. Unity is established. Disease is cured. Addiction is broken. Cities are renewed. Races are reconciled. Hope is established. People are blessed. And church happens. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for allowing us to be involved in this wonderful thing called the church. It is different in all of its many expressions around the globe. It is the same when we come back to the faith of the apostles. It is historic. And I pray that you will continue to lead us deeper and deeper into your truth. And I pray that as we pour ourselves out to you in worship and in prayer, that you will continue to light the church on fire in the way that you did in that very first community in the city of Jerusalem. We long to see a day when the church's impact, effectiveness, and attractiveness will explode once again like you have made it explode in, in different eras of the past. Lord, in very short form, we ask you this. Grant us favor. Favor with our neighbors, favor with our culture as we try to live out historic truth and love each other and love our neighbors. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.